0: What I want to be very clear to you is that we are so glad that you're here with us if you're new with us or watching online for the first time, and we want to know who you are. So uh, please text the word connect to the number that's on the screen. And one of our team members will follow up with you this week, and we'd love to answer any questions you might have and help you learn how you can get connected to the life of our church. Well, with us saying all that stuff, we need to dive right into the sermon. So uh, you can open up Mark chapter 7, and we're going to be reading verses 14 through 23 this morning, just being, just want to put everything right out in front of you. The purpose of today, and really the purpose of the next several weeks, is that you understand that he... Jesus is greater than tradition. And you understand the implications of what it means. So we want to emphasize how he is greater than tradition. And today what we're talking about is that it came from within. And you'll understand as we read Mark chapter seven, verse 14 through 23. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me all of you and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Pray with me. Lord, help us to receive your word with humility and with boldness to apply it to our lives. Help us to be emptied out right now so that we can hear from you. And Lord, I pray for me that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak what you wanna say now, and you would work in and through us. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I need to quickly address something that hopefully you've noticed this morning, you should notice it. In most translations of the passage we just read, there is not a verse 16. Only in the King James Version and a few other translations is there a verse 16 which says, if any man have ears, let him hear. So why is there not a verse 16 in the English Standard Version or other modern uh, translations? Because that verse, those words, are not actually in most of the original early manuscripts. You see, what we're reading today is uh, the compilation of early in this new Greek New Testament manuscripts. So they would look to the earliest manuscripts, and they would notice that in very few of them is this verse. And so the assumption then would be that there probably was an error in putting this verse in one of those manuscripts, and then what we have beyond that are copies of that error. You see, the Bible is what we're going from. It's not a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. It's us going back to our most earliest sources of the Scripture and then translating them into the English. But there are occasionally some translation issues where the manuscripts will conflict a little bit and some will have something and some will not, or some will have one word and some will not. Now you might be, oh my goodness, there's errors in the Bible. Well, it's not like some say Jesus and the Father are one, and some say Jesus and the Father are just homies. Like, there's not that going on in the Bible. Some don't say, children, obey your parents, and others say, parents, obey your children. So we're like, which one did Jesus say? It's not that kind of stuff. It's very small things. Now, you might say, then, well, why does this skip Verse 16 because the Greek manuscripts don't have verses. Verses weren't added till much later for reference, but by the time the modern advanced translations are happening, they the, it's so commonplace, the King James Version reference of verses, just for easy reference, they just decided, hey, we'll skip putting a verse 16 uh, to, and typically make a note about that. And, and what I would say is this particular passage of Scripture actually just has some tough translation issues from the original Greek manuscripts to the English, but none of those issues actually change the meaning of what is being taught at all. So you're welcome to reach out to me if you have more questions about where we got the Bible. Uh, If you went to Bible 101 uh, earlier this year, you can answer all those questions for other people. Uh, But Either way, we're just going to keep moving on because it doesn't change the meaning of this text. So to understand what is taking place in our text, you need to understand the setting, which we talked about last week. Jesus interacts with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are upset that Jesus' disciples are not following the tradition of the elders. They're not following their oral laws. Now, the normal people, the common folk, had distanced themselves respectfully from this dialogue between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees who had come down from Jerusalem. But in verse 14, it says that Jesus called the crowd. He called the people to him again and said, hear me, all of you, and understand. I think this is very important to take note of, specifically in the light of this issue that this text is presenting concerning men's tradition being impressed upon people. Jesus called all of the people around to hear from from him. And this is the first point I wanna make this morning. All believers have access to and the ability to understand the word of God. All believers have access to and the ability to understand the Word of God. One of the doctrines that we hold to be very dear as Protestants, specifically, is the priesthood of the believer. What that means is that every Christian has direct access to God. We do not need some other man or some person in some position that's designated by man to bring us close to God, to allow us to confess our sins to God, and to allow us to hear from God. In the Reformation, part of the issue going on is that there was actually an obstacle being put in front of the common person being able to hear from the Word of God. They did not want... Those who had become power hungry in the church and leadership did not want the Bible translated into the common man's language. So it would have to be in Latin and you would have to go and you would have to depend on someone to tell you what the word of God said. And there was all kinds of structure set up to make you have to go through in order to feel like you were made right with God and you would often pay penance in order to be right with God. And while we're kind of removed from that in many of our settings today, the dialogue can still be discouraged, and questions can s- still be discouraged, because wherever there are humans, there is this draw to those in leadership having control. You can look at our society and see, for some reason, there are people who gravitate towards having control over people. But I would, what I would suggest to you is that questions are not what scare me, it's the lack of questions that scare me. And all of us have access to the Word of God, and we need to be wrestling through how we are applying the Word of God. We need to share in that as equal people with equal access to God. But notice that Jesus calls them to Him and He calls them to understand. He doesn't just say, Hear what I'm saying, He says, Understand what I'm saying. You know that your access to God is a waste if you don't seek to know His will. You know, we pride ourselves in our culture on our autonomy and on our personal relationship with God. But many Christians are proud to have autonomy and are proud to have a personal relationship with God and yet lack devotion to God. Waste that, not hearing from God. And what I would suggest is if we pride ourselves on our autonomy and on our personal relationship with God, but we are not seeking to hear from God, then perhaps he is not our Lord. Perhaps we have not used our freedom to choose to submit to God. And that is why we see an issue in our lives of submission in many other areas of our lives. Jesus called them to hear from him and to understand what he was teaching. And Jesus calls you to hear from him and to understand what he is teaching. So what did he want them to understand? Well, here it is, and this is the second point. External things cannot make you unrighteous. External things cannot make you unrighteous. In verse 15, he said, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, to defile means to make common. It means to make unclean. The issue at hand is that the disciples are not following the tradition of the elders, these rules that are tacked on top of the Bible to help with purity. Jesus doesn't follow those rules. And he questioned the Pharisees' heart in following them by pointing out their neglect for God's will. We talked about that last week. And here, he takes it a step further. And gives crystal clear clarity. And he says to everyone who is listening, it is not what comes in that defiles you. It is what comes out. Now this would radically challenge how their culture understood cleanness. You see, the Old Testament taught that there were certain things to avoid to remain ceremonially unclean. Leviticus chapter 11, Deuteronomy chapter 14, they give guidelines to these things. But now Jesus is saying, eating these things, consuming these things, touching these things, they don't make you unclean. Matthew clarifies a little bit what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 17 and 18. He says that Jesus said, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Now, later on, after Jesus is crucified and resurrected and ascended to heaven and the Holy Spirit descends upon the early disciples and they begin to carry the gospel into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and beginning to the ends of the earth, Peter has this vision, and he has a vision of a sheet coming down and there's all like bacon-wrapped shrimp in the sheet that he sees. And, and God clarifies to Peter what that means. He says, all food is clean. And he says, the Gentiles are clean. You see, they had been avoiding certain foods because they believed consuming them would just make us unclean. And they had been avoiding certain people or putting in place certain rituals if they interacted with those certain people because they believed that they were unclean. The Old Testament gives us laws about being ceremonially clean because there was the existence of the temple. But the temple is not in existence today. And the people are often hoping that the temple be rebuilt, but Jesus himself said, there is one who is greater than the temple who is here. You see, the dietary laws that exist in the Old Testament existed because of the temple, but there is one that is greater than the temple who is here. Craig Blomberg says this, the dietary laws remain relevant for believers only in that they point people to Jesus who makes the unclean clean. The dietary laws that exist are still relevant to us today only in the fact that they show us how unclean we are, how unworthy of being in the presence of God we are, and how work of Jesus is so sufficient for bringing us into the presence of God, because not only do we get to go into the temple, but we have become the temple of God where he dwells because of the work of Christ. They show us how sufficient Christ is. It's not that those rules are obsolete, but they are now fulfilled in Christ. And they were never meant, listen to this, they were never meant to cause you to avoid the real issue of unrighteousness. They were never meant to cause you to avoid the real issue of unrighteousness because, and the third thing I wanna say is this, what makes you unrighteous is internal. What makes you unrighteous is internal. You are not made unrighteous because you consume a certain food or drink that's on the no-no list. You are not made unrighteous because you view something that you shouldn't have. That's rated R. You are made unrighteous because you have a desire to escape your responsibility to God and to others, and you escape it with that food or with that drink. You are made unrighteous because you want to see things that gratify your lusty pursuits. So Mark tells us in verse 17, when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Now, this doesn't seem like much of a parable to me. A better translation than parable might be comparison or, or riddle from the Greek. Matthew tells us that Peter is the one who has said, explain the parable to us. Now, if you notice in Matthew's gospel, Matthew will often say, hey, Peter was the one who asked this question that probably shouldn't have been asked. Uh, Matthew's writing from Matthew's perspective. Mark is actually writing from Peter's perspective, and Peter conveniently doesn't mention some of the details that it was him that asked those questions. And Jesus says to him, verse 18, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled, thus... He declared all foods clean. That's Mark's commentary. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Jesus, with a slight tone of rebuke, says, do you guys not understand either? What you ingest can't defile you. I mean, it's pretty simple. What you ingest goes into your stomach, not your heart. And then verse 19, it goes into the toilet, the latrine, it goes out. What comes out of you is what defiles you. What comes out of your heart is what defiles you. See, the heart is not just a symbol of emotion, but a symbol of decision-making. Jesus is saying, you think, and you feel, and you do. And when that is out of step with God's will, that's sin. That's where unrighteousness comes from. And then he says, verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Matthew's list is essentially the same. Except it does not include sensuality, envy, pride, or foolishness. Neither of these lists are meant to be exhaustive, but to be illustrative of what happens. They show us that sexual immorality comes from desires we have in our heart, and then we have the opportunity to meet those desires with a temptation. We sin. The theft comes from a desire for things, and when we can't get those things the honest way, we steal. That might look more advanced in a Western society. And murder comes from the anger that we have in our hearts. Now, they had gotten to the point, as they neglected the word of God and fixated on their tradition and fixated on the religion, that they assumed an inwardly pure state in every person. And it was only these outside things that could actually cause you to be sinful. But they're really missing what the scriptures teach. And Jesus brings us in the New Testament great clarity on that in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, hey, these things are happening, adultery, murder, because of what's in your heart. And even if you've thought them in your heart, you are sinning. You see, it's not these things from outside that defile a person. Jesus says in Matthew 15, 20 in Matthew's records, these are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus' main point here is that uncleanness is moral rather than ritual. Jesus' main point is that uncleanness is moral rather than ritual. Some of you are thinking, if I can do some of these things, That church people do, that religious people do, that spiritual people do, then I've fixed the sin I know that I have. But you fail to understand something that the Bible teaches. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We aren't sinners because we sin. It's not that we've done a couple bad things and so that therefore Classifies us as a sinner. No, the reason that we do those bad things is because we are sinners. That is in our nature, that is who we are. You see, this is why church people are often some of the worst people. No offense. Well, maybe offense. You see, church people check off the boxes. They do the things that they feel like they should do to really avoid or ignore or to justify the sin that they know that exists in their heart. And so they can just keep on with the sin because now they do this or don't do this. This is why I don't ignore the person that people tell me, well, that's just how so-and-so is. I think that's unacceptable. Because the reality is, that may be indicative of their heart. It's not just that the person aggravates me, which... That is a part of it, but it's, I'm just being honest. It's not that. It's that if they truly won't give an area of their life over to the Lord and won't even acknowledge that area of their life for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, then Jesus may very well not be the Lord of their life, and they may be a religious person who is headed straight to hell. And I love them too much to not address that. Paul says to the Corinthian church who's saying, hey, we have these immoral people in our midst, and we're so acceptable, he says, you're boasting his arrogance, you're boasting about your tolerance is actually arrogance. You actually are not loving that man. You're not loving the people of your congregation by just being okay with people not submitting to the lordship of Christ. And so our religion and our rituals does not get rid of sin. And our rituals and our traditions don't make us better. And, and I think this is revealing why people get so passionate about secondary issues, about style and about rituals and about you know personal convictions, if you want to use that, and traditions, because they've connected it to their righteousness. And I, I just say this: being offended because people do not follow the same secondary rules is a sign of spiritual immaturity, at least. It may be a sign of spiritual deception, but at least being offended because people do not follow the same secondary rules as you is a sign of spiritual immaturity. Now, let me, let me say this. There is some good in what you will hear from people who are going above or beyond the scripture and rules. I, I know a lot of people who are convicted that they should remain, uh, they should abstain from alcohol and that others should abstain from alcohol. And many of the reasons that people came to that conclusion are because of the things they have experienced, either because of what alcohol has caused them to do or led them to do, excuse me, or because of what happened to other people. There are many from a generation. I mean, there was a generation plagued by alcoholic and abusive fathers. And so they feel like we should not drink and and really no one should drink because of the problems they have seen. That is... That is not a bad stance. There are people who who feel like, hey, we should draw some pretty hard lines when it comes to entertainment and what we are exposed to because of how it makes them feel, their concern for their children. That's not a bad stance. That's not a bad position to take. There are people who have some pretty hard-pressed rules about dating and whether or not you know their kids should not date and and how you date and 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 once you're married, just what kind of relationships you can have with you know other people. Like and 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 the the, the heart here, the intention here is not bad. But we've got to be careful here because when we begin to impar our secondary rules and teach our secondary rules or emphasize our secondary rules, we have to be aware. You see, as as believers, we have doctrine, we have convictions, and we have preferences. And if that's a hierarchy, if that's a pyramid, doctrine is at the top of that. Doctrine are the things that the Bible teaches us that are absolutely essential, and we are unwavering on that doctrine. Doctrine. But the truth is, we have different convictions based on our background, our wiring, our experiences, whatever it may be, and those are underneath our doctrine. And we might really urge people in those, and and we might even have a hard time walking closely with people who share different convictions, but we have to remember that they're not necessarily doctrine. And then at the bottom of that pyramid are all these preferences that we might have. And and we just have to be very aware of where those things fall. But what I would suggest to you is that in a consumer culture, we're often more concerned with our preferences than we are with convictions or even doctrine. Most of us choose a church not based on its doctrine, but based on the preferences we have, the things that we like. And that's the opposite of what God wants you to be doing. God wants you to be most fixated on doctrine and then live out your convictions and really be open-handed about your preferences. And I would even say be aware that in seasons and times, some of those convictions may change, but doctrine never changes. And, And the reason I say this is A, for you to be aware, but also when we are with other people, we need to be just very mindful that there's what the Bible teaches is about alcohol, that we shouldn't get drunk, that we need to be aware of it. And then if we have convictions on whether we abstain or not, that's more of a personal conviction. And there might even be preferences beyond that. When it comes to being exposed to secular entertainment, there are clear things that we need to avoid But then we have convictions and preferences built on top of that based on who we are and and, and just what we've been exposed to. When it comes to church and worship, there are doctrinal issues about how we should worship. Our songs should be doctrine-centered. Passage, our teaching should be focused on the Bible. But then there are extra convictions and, and preferences that we might have about that. When it comes to dating and relationships, the, the same thing. And we need to approach this with the reality that there will be differences in those convictions and, and, and in those um, preferences. Think about the issue of parenting. Same thing. Now, I want to read you what Paul says. Uh, and I think this is just probably the most clear. Instruction on how we handle these secondary issues. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he's dealing with the issue of food sacrificed to idols. And he establishes food which has been sacrificed to idols is just food. Because you know what? Those are false gods. They're not real. They have no power over this meatloaf. They didn't have meatloaf, but whatever it might be. Okay? So he says that's irrelevant. The meatloaf is not evil or anything, you can eat it if you want. But then he says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have no, who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So there are two very clear things that Paul says here. The first is this. If you think these secondary issues bring you closer or farther away from God, you're immature. That's not spiritual maturity. And I do think that in the church, We have people who should be mature believers who still think that these secondary things make you close or or less close than God and are tempted to see them as a source of pride. If you think some of these things bring you away from God, then that's actually an immature stance. But then the other thing Paul says, if you know it, you know that these things that you might see, these things that you might eat or you might drink, they, they don't really affect your walk with God. It's actually what's in here that affects your walk with God. If you're mature, you need to be considerate of the immature. Because when you become a believer, you, the reason God leaves you on this earth is for his glory to serve other people. You're gonna be with God in glory forever. He leaves you for a reason. Paul says the reason I'm not with Christ right now is for other people's account, Philippians chapter one. So now as a Christian, Philippians two says, we consider others more significant than ourselves. So we think about their preferences over our preferences and their convictions over our convictions because we're the mature brother or sister in Christ. In Galatians five, Paul says, you have the freedom But do not allow your freedom to become an opportunity through the flesh, but through love serve one another. You see, that's what maturing in Christ is. It's the knowledge that we, these things have no power over me, but I need to always be considerate of my weaker brother. The greatest indicator that we're following Jesus is our humility towards God and towards others. Now, watch what Matthew says. Matthew's Gospel says, chapter 15, verse 12 through 14. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Do you know that you told them that all these rules don't bring them close to God, it's actually their sin that makes them unrighteous? And they were offended, Jesus. And he said, okay, let me change the message, let me change the teaching, let me... Let me affirm their traditions, their preferences. No, he answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And the blind and the blind, both will fall into a pit. Jesus says, they're deceived. And that's why they're pursuing their religion. That's why they're so fixated on this. They did not accept the law's verdict that they were sinners, so they tried to use the law and made up extra laws to prove to themselves and others that they were righteous. So they are off track and they're headed in the wrong direction and they're taking other people with them. They're building a way of faith based on this assumption that they can avoid things that make them unrighteous or do things that make them righteous, and they suffer from a failure to realize that their unrighteousness comes from within. And until they deal with that, until they answer that, all of their religion and all of their tradition and all of their rituals and all of their worship is whitewashing tombs. See, what happens when we come to Jesus is we realize we don't need to be cleaned up. We need to be restored. We don't need a second chance. Jesus is our only chance. We don't need to make some adjustments. We need to be transformed. We don't need a breath of fresh air. We need to be resurrected from the dead. And we don't need to pay penance for our sin. We have a debt to God that can never Be repaid. And then we see Jesus, and he says, Come to me, and you think, maybe, just maybe, he can save me. And he saves you, and he gives you his righteousness, and he gives you his holiness, and he gives you his resurrection. You see, in Christ, the external becomes internal, and you receive a righteousness that is eternal. You see, Christ is not in here, and yet we invite him and he comes in by his grace and dwells with us and gives us a righteousness that isn't temporary, that isn't defined by man, but that God says, well done, my good and faithful servant, even when we did nothing to deserve it. And maybe you've run from God or maybe you've been running with God, but really you're running from God, you've been running with God, And my encouragement to you is what Paul says to the Roman church, Romans 10, verse one through four. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Your righteousness cannot be defined by what I feel, by what my heart says, by my preferences and even my convictions because we can follow our heart and follow our preferences and follow our convictions and never engage that the Bible says we're sinners and we're in need of a savior. That's why as Christians, we cling to the gospel because we depend on it righteousness and for life and the more we cling to it the less we cling to the things of this world for comfort and security even even the religious things and you might be here today and you might have been hiding behind religion or running from religion coming up with some system on your own and where you need to turn is Jesus. It's not sin comes from within. We need what is external in Christ to save us. I don't know if you've ever heard of the resurrection plant, also called the Rose of Jericho. I think we have some images of this. It's this plant that's typically found in the desert and um, it can go a long time without water. Um, and, and basically stay alive. I realize all illustrations break down, but I mean years. And so it shrivels up. I mean, it's just a clinging on to life. And I think that might be where some of you are. And the only hope for the resurrection plan of, after all those years of hanging on is not within itself. It's the need for rain. It's the need for water, but after years of being in this condition, water brings it new life. And for you, the only thing that will bring you new life is if the mercy of Jesus rains down on you. And I just say, receive that today. Receive that today. Pray with me. God, thank you for the mercy that is found in Christ. I think that when we think of the sinner's prayer, we often think of that being something we prayed one time in our life. But Lord, I need to pray that every day. I pray that everyone in the room would pray this with me. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I sin and fall short of the glory of God. I want to be right with you and I realize I am not capable of that on my own. But you have come to us. You have given me righteousness on the cross. Righteousness that I am more and more aware of every day that I do not deserve a death of sin on my behalf done by you that I don't deserve. oh God, your mercy has rained down on me. And God, you have given me new life. And Lord, I believe in the crucifixion and I believe in the resurrection and I believe that that is the promise to me And so, Lord, help me to live a resurrected life. Help me not to live on my strength, but to live depending on you. And God, thank you for the promise of glory. Help me to see that more every day and live like it's true. In Jesus' name, amen.